So welcome back to our journey through the book of Hebrews. We are almost done with this book. Um, as for now, for the most part, we have covered chapter, uh, we have left chapter 10 through 13. Uh, of the 13 chapters in this book, we are most of the way through. And as we move forward, I want you to know what happened a little bit last week because it'll help you understand a little bit of what's happening this week. It's going to play an important role in launching us towards what we're going to hear today. Day. Now, last week, if you weren't here, we started chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the second longest chapter in the book of Hebrews, beat out only by one verse by the next chapter, uh, which is chapter 11, if you've ever heard of the Hall of Faith. Uh, that's the one we're going to be moving into soon. Now, these two chapters almost double the length of every other chapter in the book, and there's something unique about them. And these two chapters, as they are so much larger, it actually has a lot to do with the faith. And then ultimately, that's the main point of this author, as he's talking about the faith that we need to have as we work through this life. He has a lot of emphasis on different topics that are combined within these chapters. Now, a large portion of uh, chapter 10 is actually dedicated to reiterating what the author has already said. So chapters 1 through 9 are actually pretty much reiterated. So in all reality, if you're like, I'd love to know more of the Bible, but I don't have time to read the whole thing, just read chapter 10. It summarizes one through nine. You'll pretty much have what's going to happen because he does a really good job. So most of chapter 10 is actually just a reiteration of what has already been said. So that's a good thing. Now, in chapter 10, after reminding us the role of the law, which is that big weighty thing that they followed in the Old Testament, uh, it gave direction to every aspect of life uh, for the Old Testament Israelite, were reminded how woefully short it fell of perfection. In fact, last time we were reminded that the nation had taken what was supposed to actually point them to having a relationship with God and their need for a relationship, and they turned it into their national identity. So it had become more of a point of social gathering than it had been a, a place to build a personal relationship with God and their creator. The author then reminds us of our need for Jesus' death on the cross when he said these words last week. He says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And so this is what he's telling us, that if the sacrifices that were happening in the Old Testament, he talks a lot about sacrifices, uh, if they had been performed day after day, night and day, years and years, hundreds of years, if those sacrifices could have taken away the punishment for sin, then they should have by now. I mean, if this was actually working, then it should have worked by now. Have you ever seen someone fixing something until it was broke? They started fixing something, and the longer they fixed it, the worse the situation became. So when I was in the military, my wife had a uh, little yellow Ford Festiva. It was white, but we had spray-painted it yellow. Actually, her dad had kind of done most of that. and uh, It was having engine trouble, and so a bunch of young Marines with way too much time on their hands one weekend decided we could fix the problem. And we fixed it. We fixed it so good that by the end, it had 10 new problems that it didn't start out with. In fact, we fixed it so good that the brakes no longer worked by the time we were done. The brakes worked when we had started. We had fixed the problem until it no longer worked. It was bad. And this is what the author is trying to say, that if the sin problem could have been fixed the way that it was trying to be fixed, to the offering of these bulls and these goats, then it would have been done so by now. 
But all of that effort was leading nowhere, and something else had to be done. Something had to change. So he points to the death of Jesus on the cross. It's a one perfect death that echoes throughout eternity. And what we said last week when we were together is that Jesus' one sacrifice over 2,000 years ago covered all sins for all time. Our author said that if Jesus' one perfect sacrifice couldn't cover everything, then no other sacrifice could. Only Jesus' can. Nothing else can. Our job is to believe that it's true. And we have to apply it, not just know about it, but to apply it to our lives, to trust it, to live it out. And this is why our author tells us that we, because of this death, we need to do three things. So last week, he told us we needed to be do three things. He gave us these let us statements. He said, number one, we should let us draw near. Number two, let us hold fast. And number three, let us consider one another. So our faith in Jesus, what he was saying last week, is our faith in Jesus should affect us in three ways. Number one, it should allow us to draw nearer to God. So finally, because of Jesus' death, we can go into the presence of God without fear of imminent death because God has to deal with sin automatically when it's in its presence. And number two, it should encourage us, give us a full assurance of faith that if he has been faithful in the past, that he will continue to be faithful in the future. So we can rely on the past to know what he's going to be like in the future. And finally, it should affect us and the way that we treat those around us. Jesus' death should affect the way that we treat other people. It reminds us that we should be stirring up love towards one another and towards good, good works as well. As we spoke last week, we said, uh, stirring has to be intentional. Things don't become stirred by accident. They are to be purposely, we have to love those around us with purpose, regardless of how they've treated us in the past, following Jesus' own example on the cross, and display that same example by the way that we treat them, even when they haven't treated us the best. And I'm going to be honest, living this way, treating other people the way they should be treated, not the way that they've treated us, isn't always easy. In fact, it's quite hard, and it seems to go against the nature that we were born with, and I think that's the point, that our lives now have to be lived by faith, which is what our memory verse points us to. Now, last week, I started taking away different words in our memory verse. If you haven't been with us, you are uh, given a free pass on this one, but everybody else, you're in for a doozy. I've only taken two more words away. You guys did great last time. You guys seem to know it. Uh, so here we go. Let's figure out what words are missing, and then we'll say it together. Okay, it says, but does anybody know the first word? Without, okay, so it says, but without, what's the next word? Faith. Faith. Oh, see, a whole bunch of people knew that one. It is in, impossible, there you go, to please him, for he who comes to God must believe. believe that You guys have got, see, look at this, that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Okay, so since it sounds like you guys have this, let's say this together. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's Hebrews 11.6. We've been saying that now for well over 10 weeks. We are called to live our lives by faith, not just by our eyes. Faith has to be the backbone of our lives. Everything that we build in this life must be built on faith if it's going to please God as we live for him. 
So this week, instead of moving to chapter 11, which is an amazing chapter, and I can't wait to get there, I want to wrap up chapter 10. There's actually a lot of stuff at the end of chapter 10 that we didn't get to last week. Last week, we ended on verse 26, and the author still has a ton that we can still apply to our lives. And I think if we get this, it can actually really affect our everyday lives before we move on to what we call the famous Hall of Faith chapter. So this week, our sermon title is Hebrews 10.2, The Life of Faith. Now, if you're using a chair Bible, uh, you don't have your own Bible, it's page 1843. So if you're using a pew Bible uh, or a chair Bible, it's page 1843. If you have your Bibles open, for the most part, I have most of the references on screen, but I like to point you to your Bibles every now and then again. So if you have a physical copy, you're going to want to be Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 10, 26. I'll give you just a second. Hebrews 10, 26. I'm going to read out of the New King James, um, which is also what we have in our chair Bibles. It says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, we kind of covered this verse as we wrapped up last week. We looked at it very briefly. And here our author is telling us that if you and I purposefully, if we willfully follow after sin in our lives, after we've come to the knowledge of Christ, that there is no longer any new information that can help us. We already know what to do, is what he is saying. We just aren't doing it. So one author uh, that I was reading says, knowledge creates responsibility. Knowledge creates responsibility. Even in our own judicial system here in the U.S., Uh, If someone is committing a crime and they're they're going in front of a judge, they are judged by their knowledge of their actions. If they were doing it and not knowing it and it was complete omission, they're judged lighter than if they knew full well exactly what they were doing, if they knew the consequences and they still went ahead with it. The jury or the judge will actually judge them differently based on their knowledge of these and things that they were doing. As knowledge creates responsibility. If knowledge creates responsibility, this actually leads us to a couple of questions that many have asked that I think we need to give a little bit of attention to today. If no one has told me that Jesus died for my sins, do I still go to hell when I die? Am I really saved if I still struggle with sin? And if I'm God's child, why do bad things still happen in my life. You ever found yourself asking any one of these questions? What happens when the guy that's in the jungle, the tribesmen, when they die, if a missionary has never come to tell them the truth about Jesus? What happens? How can I tell if I'm a Christian if I'm struggling with sin? Or or what if if you know that you're a Christian? I know that I'm a Christian, but for some reason... I just can't seem to get into my Bible regularly. I can't seem to get to church regularly. If you've ever found yourself asking one or more of these questions, I'm going to tell you you're not alone. The reason I know this is because I have asked all of these three questions at one point in my life. Some of them, it took me years to finally get the answer. Today, I actually want to give you those answers to help you as you're growing as well. So the first question I have is, if no one told me that Jesus died for my sins, do I still go to hell when I die if I didn't know better? The verse that we just read said that if we Sin willfully after we know the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But what happens before the knowledge of truth comes in? 
I want to point you to what Scripture says in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. Familiar psalm to one or two that are in the room. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus is introduced to us as the Word of God. He's the living embodiment of God. He perfectly represents God to us. However, long before the Word came down and dwelt among us, God's testimony still went out to all of the earth. This verse says that the heavens declare the glory of God. There are many cultures throughout the world that have worshipped the heavens because they point to something greater than themselves. Now, lately, we've been talking about how the Bible stands as a witness to us, that, it, that it's God's testimony to us, his faithfulness and his promises, his character. However, the written word hasn't always been available to us. In fact, Gutenberg, the guy that invented the printing press, didn't do it until the 15th century, which in the span of time is actually relatively recent compared to how long we've been around. Even though the Bible has been translated into countless languages since, it has not been translated into all of them. Nor can the Bible itself give a testimony to those who can't read or even those who live in a culture whose uh, language is not written down. What happens when you have a culture that doesn't even have a written language? How do you tell them the Bible? And this is why Psalm 19 tells us that there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The verse continues on. It says, their line has gone out throughout all the earth to the ends of the world. Creation was made to bring glory to God, to point us to our need for a Savior. It crosses every single language barrier. But what about those who haven't had the message brought to them? Many times in the Bible, we're told that if we seek God, we will find him. In the book of Jeremiah, God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So I recently came across an article in Christianity Today, uh, and I actually wanted to pop that one up there for you so you could see. Uh, hopefully you guys can actually read that. It says, we set off to reach a remote tribe in the Amazon. Turns out they were waiting for us. The uh, article is about the Brazilian missionaries uh, who went to go out, spread the gospel. And the tribe, the Pumari tribe, was a reclusive tribe, and they were quite hostile to anybody on the outside. Um, so they actually, uh, it's a really neat story. They tried getting a riverboat, then they ended up having to do a canoe. It was multiple forms of transportation. There's a bunch of cool stories getting up. So they get to the tribe, and uh, they had learned a little bit crude language so that they could actually try to talk to them. Um, and the guy calls out, and he says, hey, we're here. Um, and an older woman answers them back, and after some introducing of themselves and telling the lady why they were there, I actually want to read you a small excerpt from this, one paragraph right here, so you can actually hear it in their own words. So the guy is talking to the old lady. It says, she asked what we were there to do. And I said, we are missionaries. We want to help you to, help to, uh, we want to help you to know Jesus, the Son of God. The lady looked at me with a puzzled expression, and then she started shouting for her grandson, Danilo. Come over, Danilo, she said. The missionaries have arrived. Take them to their home. Wait, our home? I asked. She pointed to an empty tall hut that was nearby. Danilo and I built this two summers ago, preparing for your arrival. We heard on the radio about the creator God and how his son Jesus wants to help us. I said, if this is true, 
then he will send us one of his people. So we built this hut for you. This is just one of many missionary stories that I have heard time and again that have ended up going very similarly. That people have prayed regardless. They, they know that there's something more and they've prayed, reveal yourself to us. And God has sent a missionary in response. And when the missionary gets to the field, even how remote it is, they're already waiting for them. We don't know the answer for every case, but hopefully this gives you an insight to what happens. You see, God provides a way for those who are looking for him to be able to find him. Which actually leads us into our second question. Am I really saved if I still struggle with sin? Now, while it may not sound like it, if you are struggling with sin, it's actually a good thing. It means that your conscience is working, that you know you could do better, and that God is still working on you. In fact, Jesus once said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. God is constantly drawing each and every single one of us to him, to have a more intimate relationship with him. But it's got to be our choice. At the moment we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, Paul says that we become what he calls a new man, living in the body of what he also calls the old man. We are a new man living in the body of the old man. The old man, or old nature, as Paul goes on to say, is bent on sin. It was all that nature knew. We tried to do good before we met Jesus, but all of our efforts ultimately were self-centered. When we, Christ comes in, we receive a new nature. We receive his nature, okay? So that's Romans chapter six. And in Romans six, he says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, we should no longer be slaves to sin. So one of the gifts that Jesus gives us is the ability to be no longer controlled by sin, to be able to say no to it. Paul, in his argument in Romans six, later on in that same passage, says these words. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. So according to this passage and others, since we no longer have to obey it, sin becomes more like an old habit that we have to work ourselves out of. No longer presenting it opportunities for leadership in our lives now that we live with Jesus. So think about your new life in Jesus. Think of it like in the terms of an earthquake, okay? We've all heard of earthquakes. Maybe you've lived through an earthquake. When an earthquake happens, structures that we once thought were immovable crumble down. And change now becomes possible. Things that we thought could never be changed become available. Change has been given a great opportunity to take place. However, if you've never lived through an earthquake, it's easy to forget about something that we call aftershocks. Aftershocks, if you never uh, don't know much, most of you guys probably already know, they are mini quakes that happen after the major earthquake. They, they come to become disturbances that happen for a long time afterwards. While most aftershocks are noticeable only for a couple of days, research has shown that microshocks can continue to happen for decades and even centuries after a major earthquake. When you accept Christ, an earthquake overtakes your soul. Radical change is implemented. Old strongholds come down and new growth is available to you. Change happens instantly. And while the power of sin is automatically broken in your life, in that moment, sin and our enemy will continue to try to convince you that though it is defeated, 
It'll try to resurface through these aftershocks, even for decades after you've accepted Christ. And this is why in Romans 12, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect the will of God. While in this body, we are each going to continue to struggle with sin at some level. Like an aftershock, it'll try to occasionally resurface in your life. Our job is to give it no quarter. Allow our minds to be transformed by the renewing through the word so that it reflects what has already happened in our soul, giving no room for sin to resurface. So our last question brings us back to the Hebrews chapter. And it says, if I'm God's child, why do bad things still happen in my life? In Hebrews 12, we're going to speak more about God directing and even correcting sin in our lives as children of God, especially when it's willful disobedience and he has continued love for us. However, that's not the question that's asked here. So why do bad things happen if I'm a child of God? How do bad things continue to happen? Why hasn't my life changed since I've accepted Jesus? In Hebrews 10.31, our author says some very somber words. He said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, in context, in Hebrews 10.31, he's actually talking about those who disobey God. So it's fearful to fall into the hands of a living God. However, it can also apply to those who trust him, those who want to be changed in their life through him. There's an author by the name of Clive Staples Lewis, better known as C.S. Lewis. He designed one of his book characters around the person of Jesus Christ. He called him Aslan, uh, as a lion. And as he's trying to describe Aslan to uh, one character in the book, uh, one of the people says, is he safe? And the response is, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think C.S. Lewis got it right. He recognized our situation when we followed God and Christ in our lives. To place your life in the hands of the living God is to let go of control. Letting go of control is one of the scariest things that we can ever do. It means that we're no longer in control. We each want to impact our lives for good. We, we want good things to come out of our lives, to maybe impact others as well. We want to be good examples, but what if God wants us to be examples of faith to others? Well, doesn't it sound great to be an example of faith to somebody else? Like they could point to me and say he has a great or she has a great deep faith. But what if the only path to faith is through suffering? We look at men in the Old Testament like Job. Job had a rock solid faith. He trusted God through everything, but he had to lose everything and everyone to get there. We see women in our own present era like Corey Ten Boom who had a beautiful faith and a wonderful testimony that she spread to so many. But while she has inspired many for generations, she had to live through a devastating concentration camp where she lost loved ones and family and was constantly under fear of death in her own life. These stories and so many more inspire our lives as they stand as testimonies of a heart fully dedicated to God and what it can do. However, these are things that none of us ever wish to go through. Placing our faith in God, releasing complete control to him, can be a scary thought. 
In Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 34, it seems that shortly after accepting Jesus, what was happening during this time is that many of those who had accepted Christ were starting to be persecuted for their faith. The author thanks some of them for giving to him financially when he was in chains, having been persecuted himself. They gave financially, even though they were personally being persecuted, and having their own possessions being stolen by the government. That's right. In their day, if you no longer followed the state faith, you put your trust in Christ, your home and your land could be stolen from you by the government just for having faith in Jesus. And that's what was happening during their time. So their day, being a Christian, not just being in jail, but also having all your possessions stolen. And what was their response? Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Our author tells his audience that in this life, it's going to require an endurance out of all of us. He tells them that what they have done already in their lives can be counted to them as righteousness, as good things, as a reward. Not only have they accepted Christ, but they've also persevered even under persecution in their own lives. And he tells them, don't give up hope. So what hope can we have when our future looks bleak? How can we go on living when everything we have and we've worked so hard for could be taken from us in an instant? This is what he tells us. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and he will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. He says that Jesus will not forget. He says, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. There is going to be many who say and who have already said, what you're telling me that this guy wrote like 2,000 years ago, when he said that Jesus is coming soon, um, it's been 2,000 years, Jesus isn't here yet, so what gives? Can we actually trust this guy at his word? Did this guy not know what was going on? Did Jesus not tell him the plan? And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is coming back one day. However, he doesn't have to physically show up to rescue us from our current situation. He shows up in many ways. He'll show up through a friend who randomly stops by or a stranger who's unusually kind. He shows up in and through each one of us as we interact with one another. What did he say that we should do? If you were here last week, what did he say that we should be doing towards others because of our life with Jesus? We should be purposely stirring up in another love and good works. This is what we are to be doing towards one another. So when I was in Bible college, one of my professors told me a story how when he was in Bible college himself, um, he was broke. Um, and I, when I mean broke, uh, he realized that the bills were due for tuition uh, within a couple of days and there was no way to get the money. Uh, and he, when he went to his cupboards, he had no food. I mean, even the spam was gone, so you know it's bad. Um, he had nothing. Um, in fact, actually, as he was contemplating how much nothing he had, he realized that he was probably going to have to go home and he realized that he probably didn't have enough gas to make the trip to make it home. He was in a bad situation. So he started praying, which is what we do, which is what we should be doing regularly. But when you have nowhere else to turn, your prayer changes. There's something different about your prayer when you have nothing else to rely on. And we start getting desperate and we're like, okay, God, I have to rely on you. You are my only source. Prayer becomes something else entirely when we get to that point. 
And when he was done praying, it wasn't long after he heard a knock at the door. He opened the door a couple minutes later to find out that there were two bags of groceries sitting on the porch, just randomly. No note, nothing else, just two bags of groceries. Later that same day, he went down to the mailbox at the college and he said he got a receipt in the mailbox that his tuition had been paid. God came through. And it was through prayer when he turned his life over to Christ. Our author is telling us not to give up hope. And how many of us have given up hope all too early? And his verse, in the next verse, he says these words. He says, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, speaking from God's words. But we, as the author says, we are not those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. And our author is telling you and I right now, don't give up hope. He says of you and I, we are not the ones to draw back and go back to the old ways to give up our faith. We are the ones who believe. We are the ones who God has called and we are the ones that God will use because of our unfailing faith in his unfailing character. We are the ones that he wants to use to change the world, to show them of his love. But for him to use us is gonna take faith on our part. Remember the words of our memory verse, but without faith is impossible because faith makes all things possible. We'll be talking about that very thing next week. So with that said, let's close with two questions. Question number one, have you been giving sin leadership in your life? If you have accepted Christ as Savior, the only way for sin to have any control in your life is if you have purposely led it, you've allowed it. Most of the time, we don't mean to. In fact, we think that when we give in to little sins, it won't amount to much. We'll still be in control and it won't get out of control. That's rarely the case. Sin always grows bigger and goes further than we can imagine when we give into it. My challenge to you is to ask Jesus today to help you to take control of the aftershocks of sin in your life as a Christian. And second question, who do you want to have control in your life? Do you want to be in control? Or are you ready to hand it over to God? Handing over to him, it can be a scary thing. I've been there, I've done that. You never know what God's going to use your life for. But he could do some amazing things, but they're not always easy things. Sometimes they're very hard things. But rest assured, whatever he will do will not only bring glory to him, it'll help you to finally feel complete and full as you allow your relationship with him to come to full blossom. Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you so much for your word. I do ask that you continue to encourage us. Help us to ask hard questions. And Lord, as we seek after you, reveal yourself to us. Help us to have full faith and assurance that you will do what you have said and promised you will do. Lord, work in our lives and use them as we let go of ourself and we give ourselves to you. Lord, I ask that you continue to work through each and every single member of this congregation. Help us to become living examples of what a life fully devoted to God looks like to our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I wanna remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by scripture to gather together, 
so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.